Hi, I'm Rebecca, and this is my podcast, The Second Half. Thank you to all of you that have been listening to the podcast and to anyone else that just joined us today. This podcast is about the challenges and joys we experience, especially in the second half of our lives. I hope that the stories that my guests and I share will make you feel less alone as you face your own challenges and will make us all feel more connected as a community. Today on the show, I'm talking to Lucinda Robb about the passage of the 19th Amendment, which gave women the right to vote, and what modern movements can learn from the long and ultimately successful struggle for women's suffrage. Lucinda has a book coming out this fall with her co-author, Rebecca Roberts, titled The Suffragist Playbook, Your Guide to Changing the World. She also serves on several nonprofit boards, including the National Archives and Running Start, which trains young women to run for office. Here we go. Hi, Lucinda. Thank you so much for being on the show today. Thank you for inviting me. I've really been looking forward to this. I thought today we could talk about the suffrage movement, especially since a month from now, on August 26th, will be the 100th anniversary of the 19th Amendment, which gave women the right to vote. As we look forward to these social movements that we are having right now, what can movements like Black Lives Matter and the LGBT movement learn from the long and ultimately successful struggle for women's suffrage? Well, there are a lot of things we can look from the suffrage movement, just not only on what to do, but what not to do. I guess there's sort of three things that I would say you need to start out with. First, when you want to make big change, you have to have a clear, actionable goal. Um, and you know, it's great to say things are not good. We don't like the way they are, but you've got to figure out how are you going to get a lot of people behind your movement? How are you going to get them to understand what you're talking about? So usually the suffrage movement is uh, defined as having started at Seneca Falls in 1848, um, which is the first time somebody publicly uh, wrote down that women should have the right to vote with the Declaration of Sentiments. And by saying that it was the right to vote, that became something people could focus on. Now, before then, you know, for 10, 15 years prior to that, there had been talk in progressive circles that, you know, women's rights were something they should be thinking about. And, and as people at the time were trying to do something about slavery and to abolish slavery. And as more women got involved, they noticed that they didn't have a lot of rights either. And they right. started thinking about it. But once they got to the point where they could say, okay, this is what we're going to, to concentrate on, it became easier for people to understand. Um, and then once you figure out what it is, you have to get out there and promote it like hell. You right. can't, well, I've said it once, now everybody understands, or I've said it twice. Um, I was looking up something recently on Susan B. Anthony, and she estimated that she gave 75 to 100 speeches every year for four decades. Wow. That is an enormous amount of work. Now, of course, right. in those days, you didn't have Instagram and you couldn't make right. videos or memes or do all the sorts of things that you can do today. So she literally had to travel all over the country um, nonstop tens of thousands of miles, but you have to get out there and you constantly have to spread the word. And, and it's got to be a clear message. And it's interesting to me today when I look at something like um, Campaign Zero, uh, you know, you talk about Black Lives Matter and people say, well, what can I do? What can we focus on? 
Campaign Zero has something called Ain't Can't Wait. And it's specific goals about what they want to do. And I think that's very important if you're trying for any movement, whatever it is, to be able to articulate what it is you want to do and what you want to accomplish. Right. Um, so first, actionable goals, and then you got to promote them. The second thing that I think is also very important is you want to engage a wider audience. I mean, we'd all like if people would do things because they are morally right things to do. Mm-hmm. But the truth is, you wind up getting a much larger group and you're usually more successful if you can explain why your cause um, is good for everyone. Sort of what's in it for me? Right. Why should I support your cause? Mm -hmm. So you can look at something like uh, the environmental movement when they talk about, well, this is something that will happen. It's not just because it's the right thing to do. It's because it will literally make an impact on where you live and your quality of life. That's why you should get involved, not just because you care about saving the animals or or other species, um, but it has a personal impact on you. And with the suffrage movement, one of the reasons why it really got a big boost sort of in the progressive era in the late 19th century, in the 1880s and 1890s, is they started tying it to progressive reform. And women would say things like, You know, we need to have the ballot, not just because it's right to, you know, we should be considered equal, which, of course, today you and I can think, well, of course, women should be considered equal. But they made the argument that if women have the ballot, we'll be able to vote for all of these things that are important to our families, important to our children, important to society and sort of that caretaker role that we have. And they called it they branded it the home protection ballot. Interesting. And again, that's smart to sort of get people involved. And then finally, I think the third thing you need to do, aside from actionable goals and getting a bigger audience involved, is you really need to recruit the allies that you need. Basically, that comes down to people in power, which, practically speaking, has, is still, back then and today, generally white men. Um, and that's one of the most fascinating things about the suffrage movement to me, is how many men were actively involved in working to promote the cause. From the very beginning, uh, Frederick Douglass uh, was instrumental in Seneca Falls' declaration that they even voted to have suffrage be something that that they were going to say women should want. And that was in 1848. Throughout the amendment, you have men who are involved, often because they know suffragists, their husbands or their friends or their sons or or very often because they worked on common causes together. Mm -hmm. But then towards the end, because you've had all of that movement, people have been hearing about it, they've been learning about it, sort of that gradually it's become something that went from being very fringe to something that was much more socially acceptable, or at at least people knew about it. It didn't seem quite so weird and quite so unusual. And then you start seeing men getting involved in a much larger way. And one of the things that fascinates me is... Up in New York, um, they started basically in about 1911, a men's suffrage league. Hmm. The man who started it and first got organized, his mother was a suffragist. His grandfather was a very famous uh, abolitionist. He himself was very prominent publisher of two newspapers. And his mom wrote to him and said, you really need to get involved in this. And he decided, hey, I need to recruit some guys. And he he talks to a young man that he knows and says, I need you to go out and help me organize this. And at first, this young man writes some of the most sort of socially prominent people in New York. 
the people who were in the top of their professions, who were very highly respected, went to all the right parties, things like that, had a lot of money. And he writes and he says, I'm trying to get this league together and all we need is your name. And as long as you get your name, and I'm not going to publish your name until we have a whole bunch of you together. And, and then that will be a way to say that we have this support. But the interesting thing that happens is once he gets that 100 names and more, the men themselves, and all they've been asked to do is just sign their name, right. is they start to get a lot more interested and a lot more involved. And they start to debate, uh, you know, with their wives, they go out and they speak in public supporting suffrage. And those who are newspaper editors get their reporters to write more about it. Those who are lawyers help the suffragists who had gotten arrested. Um, they start creating this groundswell. They start to help fund it. They actually march in a parade in New York. And at first, they're widely ridiculed because there are about a thousand of them. And all of the people lined up along the lines are making fun of them and jeering at them and calling them all sorts of names. But it starts to become larger and larger than that. And New York actually passes suffrage for women in 1917, three years before the National Amendment. Interesting. And in the end, you don't pass suffrage without white men. Um, there were no women who were available to vote for it to pass an amendment. It had to be all men. And there are a lot of great stories about the men who, in the final call, when they're voting in the House and they're voting in the Senate, who come to put their support behind it. You have to have two thirds of both the House and the Senate before you can even send it on to the states. Interesting. And there are men who come to vote in the House. There's several stories that I find very touching. There's a representative who has broken his shoulder, but before he goes to the doctor, he says, I've got to go vote for this because it's going to be a close vote. And it was, it only passed by one vote. And not only after he votes for it, he stays because he wants to make all the other people feel guilty. And another man who had come from the deathbed of his wife up in New York, and she was a suffragist, and he had pledged to her that he would come down and vote for suffrage. And he does, and he turns around to go and plan a funeral. Wow. Um, so uh, there are every person in the end who votes to give women the right to vote is a man. So allies are incredibly important. Yeah. One of the things that we've been talking about, uh, especially with the Black Lives Matter movement, about how to keep the momentum going, what can we learn from the suffrage movement that would speak to that? Uh, that's a great question. I think you do hear people who are afraid and they think, what if this is sort of a flash in the pan and this is just something that people are going to care about now? And instead, I guess the way that I would think about it is that the previous times that it had been brought up, people say, why is it happening with George Floyd? Why didn't it happen with Trevin Martin? And I think that what's really happening is you're seeding the ground, you're planting those seeds ahead of time, and now you're really starting to bear fruit. You're really starting to have people pay attention. That said, when you're making big social change, it's going to take a long, long time. It's not going to happen overnight, and you kind of have to dig in and be patient. Now, the suffrage movement took 72 years. I don't think it's going to take that long, but just anything that you want to get laws passed and changed does take some time. Things move a little faster now, but it's still the wheels of government, the wheels of bureaucracy move slowly. One of the things I would tell the protesters and activists today is don't get discouraged. I mean, Susan B. Anthony's last public words were failure is impossible. 
And if you believe enough in a cause, that's what you have to, to really focus on. You don't ever give up. So it's going to be hard. Um, and the suffragists had to deal with arrests and public ridicule and widespread condemnation. And they were attacked and they were burned in effigy and all sorts of things. Um, right. But they didn't give up. And your opposition is going to grow as well. And that's something that's sort of fascinating to me. There were a lot of women who were against women's suffrage, not when it was sort of a small movement that, you know, was considered fringe. But once it became a big national movement, you had a corresponding backlash to it. And there are a lot of women who are against suffrage, not as many who are for it, but, mm -hmm. but they were there. So one of the things you do is you just, you recognize that that's going to happen right. and you have to stick with it. But you also want to think about sort of, I, I think of it as go for the low hanging fruit. You are going to have some wins and some of them are going to come faster than you think. Mm -hmm. So monuments are going to come down. You're going to have, you know, the Mississippi flag that changed much more quickly than I ever would have suspected. Um, and you had things like that that happened in the suffrage movement. You know, it's a big movement. It's essentially women's rights. There's a lot of other different parts to it. But along the way in that 72 years, Women got the right to speak in public. They got the right to join in different jobs and get higher education. It used to be that you weren't legally allowed to own your own wages as a woman. And wow. those things started to change. Mm -hmm. So it took time to get the vote. But a lot of other things happened along the way. Interesting. Do you see any similarities in the tools and the tactics that the suffrage movement used that are similar to the social movements today? Oh, there are a ton. And, and they're great. By the way, I think it's wonderful that you look and you, you know, figure out what are the best practices and you adapt from other organizations. I mean, suffragists basically invented the idea of picketing in front of the White House. The first big sort of protest parade that we can think of was the suffrage 1913 parade. Now, see if this sounds familiar. You had a bunch of women and they wanted to speak about the rights of women. And they happened to have a big parade in Washington on Pennsylvania Avenue, just, you know, right after the same time a president is just coming into office. Mm -hmm. and this is the 1913 suffrage parade. And it was really the first time anything like it had been done. There had been sort of very, uh, you know, activist type cause parades. And it was a huge deal when it happened. In fact, this was for Woodrow Wilson was coming into office. And this parade, you had a whole bunch of men who showed up in town for the inaugural. Mm -hmm. And basically, a lot of them were drunk. And the women are marching down Pennsylvania Avenue. And at first, it started off as just how the women intended. You know, it was, we're going to show all of these women from the different states, from the different professions, from the different universities, from the different places, to show our support for women's suffrage. Mm -hmm. And then pretty soon, the crowd starts getting hostile and throwing abuse and and throwing stuff at them and really making it uncomfortable. And they can, it gets so crowded that they can only go one by one and the police aren't doing anything about it. They're, they're letting it happen. But this became national news. It made all the national newspapers, what had happened in Washington, DC. And it sort of became this extra jolt for the movement that they really needed. And, and that's what I find fascinating is that groups today are finding new ways to get attention. I just saw that there's a group in, in uh, Portland, the wall of moms, you know, this idea that you, you get, how are you going to get people's attention when so much else is going on? I mean, you know, it's always important to pay attention to how things look. 
And back then, the suffragists were very aware visually of what things looked like. So signs that paid a lot of attention when they were marching and picketing in front of the White House to making sure that their signs were something that could be read if a reporter took a picture and appeared on the front page of a newspaper. Interesting. So yeah. they were very careful about that. And you find that today, you know, that's almost, you know, Black Lives Matter being painted on the streets. Um, it's the same sort of thing. How do you visually get people to pay attention? You know, signs are something that, that people pay a lot of attention to and, and they notice and it shows up in their Instagram feeds and, and uh, it makes us aware. So that, that's something that the suffragists did. And I think activists today are doing very successfully doing something bold that'll get a lot of attention, like a parade or the wall of moms or things like that. The, another thing the suffragists did is they were very careful to train the women who were on the forefront and who interacted with the public on how to do so. They would train them how to speak in public, mm-hmm. would train them how to deal with a heckling crowd. And you have this sort of sense of, you know, they literally taught them how to be arrested. They said, okay, this is what you need to do. When you, you go and the judge says, you know, do you want to go out on bail? You decline bail because what we're looking for is public sympathy. And then you're a prisoner of conscience. And this is how you're going to survive being in jail in really uncomfortable, miserable conditions. And this is something with activists today. They're telling them, this is what you need to do. This is how you need to be aware. This is, this is the way that you handle possibly being arrested. How do you handle the media? How do you handle everything that's going to happen and go on and, and be aware for it? Very much an issue in the civil rights movement of the 60s. And they were training the marchers. They were training the people who were sitting at the lunch counters. You know, these are good tactics and you keep doing them, making sure that your audience knows what to how to handle. Right. What about mistakes that the suffrage movement made that we can also learn from as we go through the movements that we have today? Well, the big sort of uncomfortable mistake of the suffrage movement was how racist it was, especially at the end. This is very hard to talk about, especially as someone who is proud of a lot of the suffragists and proud of what they accomplished. But at the same time, I don't think we can ignore it. And it's a much longer conversation But you have to be careful in any movement, especially any movement where you're trying to talk about rights, is that you don't get so focused on the goal that you lose your soul. Because suffragists were pursuing a constitutional amendment and they required at least some southern states to vote for it, particularly at the end, the language that they get as they're trying to persuade the Southern states to vote for it is really racist. It's really uncomfortable. And this is something, you know, that I think we have to be aware of. It's easy to look back at the people in the past and say, I would never do that. And, and hindsight is 2020 and to think, well, of course, I'm not going to make that mistake. But I think it's worth looking. And a lot of people are looking at it now at the mistakes the suffrage movement made in part, because we have to be aware, are we making that mistake today? and not even realizing it? Are there groups that we are disenfranchising, that we're actively throwing under the bus and hurting as we're trying to get our goals? And uh, and I just think that's something we always have to be aware of and pay attention to. Most of our heroines and heroes will have feet of clay. Right. Tell us about uh, the book you and Becca Roberts have written on the suffrage movement. Well, we wanted to do a history of the suffrage movement 
but we wanted it to be fun. Uh, I think you find a lot of great material about suffragists and particularly individual leaders that's written sort of for a young grade school audience. And, and there's good stuff out there. And then you have a lot of scholarly works. And what we wanted to do was find something that was sort of in between. We also wanted to specifically look at what are the tactics what are the things that they did well that we can copy today? Mm-hmm. So we called it the suffragist playbook, okay. um, your guide to changing the world. And the idea is to teach some suffrage history, but to really have something that's extremely practical to say, okay, if you want to do something that's going to make a difference, take these steps and you'll be able to make change. And so that's what we did. And, uh, and we wanted to be fun and we wanted to teach about these great women because my experience has been, you know, I grew up with a strong mom who was interested in women's history and I heard a lot about it. And so did Becca. Her mother, obviously, uh, Koki Roberts was very, very involved and has written a lot of book about uh, women's history and, and some of the famous founding mothers. But our experiences are a little unusual. Most of the time, uh, if you encounter anything about the suffrage movement at all, you'll learn about it sometime in high school and you get about, you know, two paragraphs maybe in a high school right. history. You don't get a lot of background. Most people don't know the names of the suffragists, which I think is a real shame because one of the great successes of it is you made huge, huge change and nobody gets killed. You know, in the end, we study a lot of wars. We study a lot of revolutions, but it's kind of nice to be able to focus on how do you make this big change without having violent social upheaval and people getting killed? How do you do it in a way that's nonviolent? And for that, I think you need to study the suffragists. Yeah. So how did the 19th Amendment finally get passed? Well, I talked a little bit earlier about the need for allies and how you had to have men involved. And by the time it finally passes the House and it passes the Senate, and the first time it actually passes the House, the women in the gallery are so excited that they start singing, praise God from whom all blessings flow. But they know they have work to do. They have to get out to all of these different states. Sometimes they have to call special sessions to get them to ratify it. And at first, a bunch of states are racing to see who can be first. And they're all excited. I'm going to be at first. But After a while, and you get some states, you get, and obviously all the states where women can vote, that was kind of a no-brainer, but then it starts to get harder and harder, and you have some states that don't vote to ratify, so they're in the no column, and they're against it, and it finally comes down to Tennessee. There's one state left, and if you miss Tennessee, it looks like the whole thing is going to fall apart. You have to start all over again. It's exhausting. There's been a huge amount of nonstop campaigning. You have all the anti-suffragists there. You have the liquor lobby, which is very involved because, remember, this is a time where you also, the 18th Amendment was prohibition. And the liquor lobby uh, rightly was worried that women were not going to be in favor of liquor and were not going to be in favor of alcohol. And there was definitely something to that. So. There's stories about how in the halls of the state house in Tennessee, literally everybody's roaming around drunk. Um, but but they think they've finally, the anti-suffragists think they've finally gone ahead and they've shut it down. It's not going to happen. And back then, people are wearing roses. They called it the War of the Roses because you wore a rose, if you're a gentleman, on your lapel to show which side you were for. So it was the red roses were the antis and the yellow roses are the people who were for suffrage. And they think they've got the votes to sort of table everything. And once you've tabled it, that's it. It's not going to happen. And, and they're going through the roll call of vote and they've counted their votes. They know they've got everybody. 
And one of the votes is this young man, 24, and, um, and he's got a red rose on. And so they think they know how it's going to go. And he actually goes ahead and he votes not to table it, but in favor to pass ratification. And everybody's like, oh my gosh, what happened? What happened? This 24 year old guy, what happened? It winds up passing by the skin of its teeth, thanks to Harry Byrne. And the press, of course, descends on him later. Why did you change your vote? We thought you were going to vote against. What happened? And, and he says this, and I, I particularly love this. He says, well, I voted that way. And he talks about wanting to be on the, you know, his version of wanting to be on the right side of history and a bunch of different things. But in the end, what the press paid attention to and what I remember is he says, I voted that way because my mom told me to vote that way. And he pulls out this, this letter that he got from his mom and his mom essentially was a suffragist. And she says, this is how I want you to vote, Harry. You know, I need you to support this. And as a mom today, and he says, it's the best idea for any young man to follow the advice of his mother. Right. And, you know, being, being a mother myself, I think that's very sound. I think me it's too. very but it all comes down to Harry Byrne. It's a fascinating story. And even the women who are against suffrage wind up learning so much about politics and so much about influencing the public sphere and so much about petitioning and lobbying and writing and, and organizing public campaigns that they really themselves are doing all of the skills that they say that they're against. And for the first election after, you know, 19th Amendment is passed and women first vote, people thought there's going to be this big, huge change. Women are going to vote one certain way and we're going to get all these different things. And in fact, that doesn't happen. It takes a while to get used to voting and to vote regularly. So in the first election, only about a third of the women who could vote, vote. But today, more women than men vote, significant, about 10 million more women than men vote. Interesting. Um, and furthermore, a greater percentage, and that's not just because there are more women than men, um, a greater percentage of women vote than men vote. And they used to call it the gender gap. Now they're calling it the gender chasm. There's so many more women voting. And hmm. obviously they're not necessarily monolithic in how they vote. Not at all, right. You see a lot of, they talk about the women's vote. Politicians pay close attention to that today because right. it really does make a difference. Yeah. And it's exciting. It is exciting. Yeah. Especially now, as we're coming up to the elections in November. So, when is your book coming out? Ah, it's coming out September eighth, and we are very excited. Originally, we were going to be doing the uh, National Book Festival, and Beck and I. Um, this is something that I've been going to with my kids for years. So I thought, oh my gosh, I get to go and be a presenter at the National Book Festival, and now we have to do it on Zoom. <laughs> <laughs> right, like a lot of things today. Yeah. But it's a fun time to have this book come out just because it is so incredibly relevant because of all of the, the change that's happening right now. In our country. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Lucinda, thank you so much for coming on the show and talking about this very interesting uh, movement, an important movement for our history. I really appreciate it. Oh, thank you for having me. I enjoyed it. Okay. Bye. Bye. Hi, thanks for listening to the show. If you liked it, please subscribe to the podcast and rate it and leave a review. See you next week on the second half.